0: In September 1774, a group of men representing 12 of the original 13 colonies met in Philadelphia to discuss human rights. These colonial leaders believed their rights as Englishmen were being abused. They addressed their grievances to King George III of England, who only responded with more political abuses, so... in The following year, May 1775, this group met again, this time represented by all of the colonies, known as the Second Continental Congress. It lasted well into 1776. Now, you're familiar with this part of U.S. history because it was on July 4th that the Declaration of Independence was signed. That document, among others, set the course of this nation's character. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal and endowed by the Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these uh, are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And so we would be a nation always concerned with the rights of its citizens. For example, those colonies, later states, would not sign the newly formed U.S. Constitution until after the Bill of Rights was added. As Americans, we look back and applaud our ancestors for their wisdom and courage. And as a result, again, freedom and personal rights were written into our national DNA. We are the land of the free, the home of the brave. We hold our own personal freedom and personal rights above all else. But my questions this morning are these. Are there times that human rights, personal freedoms, cease? Or are we always free to do whatever we want, whenever we want, to whomever we want, regardless of another's rights or moral rightness? Said another way, can my rights trump another's rights? You see, we then roll the clock forward almost 200 years to January 22nd, 1973. Another group of people met, this time in Washington, D.C., to discuss human rights. The group was the Supreme Court, and the conclusion at which they arrived has gone down in history as the Roe versus Wade decision. That decision is... Well, as another, Doe versus Bolton, made later that same year, required that abortion on demand be, number one, you put these two together, number one, legal for any woman, regardless of her age, and number two, legal for any reason during the first seven months of pregnancy and for virtually any reason thereafter. And so again... My question is, does a woman's right over her own body supersede the the rights of the body within? I I know there are lots of questions about that, philosophical, medical, religious, political questions as to the body within. Does he or she have rights? Is the body indeed a person? Is the body self-conscious? Is the body... Viable. There are many Americans who do not look back and applaud the spurious wisdom and courage of that 1973 decision. You see, since then, there have been at least 61 million babies aborted in America. 61 million, that is almost one-fifth of our current population. It is more than the combined populations of Philadelphia, where they first met, and D.C. in 73, and New York City, and Los Angeles, and Chicago, and Atlanta, more. It is, listen carefully. It is more than the combined total of every American life given in every war this country has ever fought, from the American Revolution to the recent Iraq Wars, wars presumably fought protecting our freedoms and rights or the freedoms and rights of others. And so, last Thursday, we celebrated the 75th anniversary of D Day. People gathered from all over the world. D-Day, one day when 4,400 soldiers lost their lives on the shores of Normandy. Today, since 1973, we have averaged aborting almost that many children, a little less, almost that many children every day, seven days a week. 365 days a year today as a result of that infamous decision about one in five pregnancies end in abortion there is some good news after annual abortions in the US had a high of 1.4 million in 1990 the number has gone down almost every year The last year we have stats, 2015, just over 600,000, the fewest number of abortions in this country since the first year it was legalized, 1973. I know. That's just a lot of incomprehensible, mind-numbing numbers, right? That represent lots and lots of babies, Chances are you have discussed the topic of abortion many times in your life. Those discussions likely range from when does life really begin? By the way, that question has been put to rest. More recently, when is the fetus a person? What about abortion in cases of incest or rape? What if a mother's life is in danger. By the way, those two, in cases of rape or incest, or the mother's life in danger, combine them all, less than 1% of the total of abortions. What if the child will be handicapped? That, by the way, is called eugenics, something that we condemned the Nazis for doing in World War II. These have been hashed and rehashed over the past 46 years. I do not intend to rehash all of the arguments yet one more time. But given current events in our country and this elephant in the room series, topics too big to ignore that we have been doing, you've been with us over the last four weeks, you know that we began the first two with, um, has the church exchanged holiness for a pursuit of authenticity? Authenticity. Has the church given up on evangelism because it's seen wrongly as proselytizing? But these last two weeks, last week, the inevitable end of the sexual revolution, and and this week, the biblical right to life, they, they may sound like political issues to you. I want to be clear. They may be political, but they are first and foremost moral, biblical, and discipleship issues. I want to address the fourth one today because you have probably noticed abortion rights have flared up significantly over the past few months on almost every news outlet and social media page, if you are unaware, if you don't know, this year nine states have Pass laws significantly limiting abortion in their respective states. Now, none of those laws are yet in effect pending, uh, given pending litigation or lawsuits. And it is expected at least one of these cases will eventually make it to the Supreme Court who will perhaps reconsider Roe versus Wade, that is, if they even agree to hear the case. The restrictions passed in those nine states, range from, incredibly, no abortions at all, no abortions after six to eight weeks, which is the so-called heartbeat law, when you can detect a heartbeat, no abortions, Uh, no abortions after 18 to 22 weeks, which is approaching viability, once seen as 24 weeks, but don't know if you saw it, but in the news recently, a 21-week preemie doing well today. Exceptions are allowed in some of those states for cases of rape or incest or if the mother's health is endangered. The most restrictive law uh, was passed in Alabama where all abortions are, are outlawed unless the mother's health is at risk. Remember, less than 1%. By the way, North Carolina is not one of those nine states. To be sure, our legislature recently passed a law requiring babies still alive after an abortion be given immediate medical attention. In other words, if after abortion the baby is still alive, preserve the life. However, our governor vetoed the bill. I want you to think carefully and critically about that. Such a thing is called a botched abortion. The baby comes out alive. The question is what to do with the baby. For decades, the child has been left to die, but some are now fighting for the life of that child. Pro-choice people, those on the liberal left, are arguing for the baby to die. By the way, in violation of the Hippocratic Oath, which is why I don't call them abortion doctors, I call them abortion providers. Think about this with me. The purpose of an abortion presumably has been to terminate a pregnancy, That is actually accomplished in this so called botched abortion. Three events terminate a pregnancy a miscarriage, an abortion, or a birth. So the pregnancy has been terminated. Success, the the woman's rights over her body have been preserved. But that's not good enough. Now, allow the child to die. In other words, true colors are exposed. The ult- Listen carefully. The ultimate aim of abortion is not to terminate a pregnancy, but to terminate a life. Robert P. George of Princeton University recently wrote, So to claim that there is a right to abortion is not merely to say that a woman has the right to terminate the pregnancy or even control her own body. It is to claim that she is entitled to order the killing of the baby, in order to order the performance of an act on the child's body to end her life, to make her dead. He writes further, Of course, clear-headed and candid abortion advocates acknowledge this. They admit that the right they believe in is no mere right to be free of an unwanted pregnancy. It is the right not to be a mother, not to have a living child out there in the world, the right to state the matter bluntly to a dead fetus. I want you to, to know... That as a church, we are opposed medically, ethically, politically, legally, philosophically, and biblically to abortion. But, but but, since I am not a doctor, a politician, a lawyer, or a philosopher, although having done all of the reading that I have done, I feel like that I could argue in each of those areas... I will confine my thoughts to the latter, the biblical reasons we stand for life. And I would approach, I would like to approach the topic from the vantage point of two fundamental and biblical human rights. That that is, after all, what the discussion is all about, certain inalienable human rights. Fine. R.C. Sprawl, in his book on abortion, wrote as he reviewed the emotional issues on both sides of the discussion, he writes, "...a further issue complicates the matter, one that many Americans consider the most fundamental democratic right of all, the right to freedom of choice." Is that most fundamental? Perhaps the most frequently stated sentiment of those caught in the middle of the abortion debate debate goes like this. I would not choose to have an abortion for myself, but I would not force my view on someone else. I hope that is not our position. You say, but to force my view on someone else is to be intolerant. No, it is to stand up for the rights of another human being. The right to one's opinion is a sacred belief in United States tradition. Here's my simple question. Is it the most fundamental of rights? I will seek to prove that the right to life is the most basic of all human rights. The right to life, remember, that we have been granted certain inalienable rights that among them are life. So what does the Bible say about life, specifically the rights, the right to life of the unborn? Before we look at that, you need to understand clearly the point of disagreement between those who favor abortion and those against abortion, those who are pro-choice and those who are pro-life. And it it lies in the definition, get this, this is important, it lies in the definition of of personhood. I said I was not going to get into philosophy. Allow me for just a moment to venture into an area in which I will be swimming. Dr. Paul Fowler, one of my seminary professors, in his book, Abortion Toward an Evangelical Consensus, says... Personhood is the crux of the matter. You see, when this issue really came to the forefront back in the 60s, the pro abortion platform used to refer to the fetus as a blob, an unwanted mass of tissue, a parasite, like a cancer, just get rid of it. The, the, those terms tended to dehumanize the unborn child and served to soothe troubled consciences. But they have been forced to abandon that position because medical science has solidly proven human life begins at conception. When the sperm invades the egg, you have life. Here's the question, what kind of life? It, it is human life. It's not dog life. It's human Life. As I understand it, the question of when life begins is really not an issue for debate anymore. It is generally agreed that life begins at conception. So now, the crux of the matter is this Is the unborn child a person? Okay, so it's alive, but is it a person? Is it fully human? The landmark Roe versus Wade decision paved the way for abortion by saying the. Uh, th- that uh, constitutional law, um, equally available to all, did not need to protect those who are not, listen, quote, persons in the whole sense, i.e., the unborn. The unbelieving world would have us believe that there are three criteria. This is the philosophy part, that there are three criteria for determining personhood. All or at least one of these should be met before someone can be called a person, First is the physical criteria. This view holds life is not fully human until a certain stage of physical development is reached. Guess when that is? When the infant has the ability to survive outside the womb. Interestingly, this argument goes further to center around the health of the person. 46 chromosomes must be present in each cell developing normally to qualify for personhood. Thus, hear what they are saying. Birth defects supposedly render an organism, not a baby, but an organism unable to live a meaningful life and places too much burden on society. In fact, Nobel... Prize-winning biologist Francis Crick even once argued that we should wait until children are at least two days old before we legally declare them persons. Why? By this time, we will be able to certify that they are physically healthy as if physical health determines personhood. The second criteria imposed is the social criteria. The belief is that interaction with other human beings on a non-biological level is necessary in order to be a person. Such capacities as love and self-consciousness and ability to relate and communicate with others. If a child has not reached a certain maturity level in such relationships, that child is not yet a person. It goes on. One leading geneticist believes a child is only set apart from the rest of the animal world when he or she can participate in, quote, a meaningful cognitive interaction with his mother and with the rest of society. If you are unable to have a cognitive interaction with those around you, you are not yet a person. When does that come is my question. Does that at six weeks, six months, two years... You see where this is going. Finally, the third is the mental criteria. This is the most popular. Unless the individual demonstrates some degree of reason, volition, listen, remember this one, self-awareness, he or she is not yet a person, even a human being. So for example, Joseph Fletcher once argued, an individual is not a person unless he or she has an IQ of at least 40. 40. Obviously, he says, a fetus or even a newborn child cannot even take the test, so does not yet qualify as a person. You say, what? Uh, okay, what is this all about? I, I, I don't get this. This is philosophy. Where's the Bible? I'm getting to it. First, you need to remember this, what this whole argument is about rights, human rights, particularly that of the woman. And so if they, here's what they're doing, if they can strip away personhood from the fetus, they are not denying another human being of his or her rights. That's the point. And secondly, let me read to you again from Dr. Fowler's book. It would be hard, if not impossible, to live with yourself if you knew you were responsible for killing innocent people. But pro-choice advocates merely, uh, pro-choice advocates seem to believe that they are not killing people. According to their logic, the unborn are non-persons, merely potential persons, in the process of developing two persons in the full sense of that term. They're not people. That brings us back to the question is an unborn child a person? What does the Bible say? I would argue he or she is a person on the following four premises. Number one, man and woman are created equally in the image of God. We talked about this last week. From the very beginning, humankind was different from the animal world. In Genesis chapter 1, on the sixth day of creation, after God had made everything else He said let us make man in our image according to our likeness let them rule over the fish of the sea over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image in the image of God he created him male and female he created them humankind is not a different kind of animal life to be clear. We are different altogether, even different than the angelic world. We and we alone are made in the image of God. This, by far, is one of the most important arguments against abortion and for personhood. How exactly is man made in the image of God? One way upon which all theologians agree is that it is an inherent. Listen, it is an inherent or intrinsic image passed from one generation to the next. It is not something that we earn. It is not something that we develop in a certain stage of development. It is something that is ours by nature of creation. It is not ours based on something we do, it is received at conception. In the words of one author, it matters not if an individual is young or old, handicapped or perfectly formed, weak or strong, poor or rich, black or white or yellow or red. The life of every person is of value to God and should be to us. We are God's image bearers given at conception. Premise number two, the child is known by God before his or her birth. There are a number of scriptures to prove this point, that, 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 that God knew people before they were born. Of course, the first one who comes to mind is Jesus himself. Talk about an unplanned pregnancy. In all of, the, all of those modern Joseph and Mary stories, what if Joseph pressured Mary to have an abortion Luke chapter 1, the angel Gabriel speaking to Mary said, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. Later, when Mary visited her pregnant cousin Elizabeth the baby, and Elizabeth leapt for joy at the sound of Mary's voice, meaning even a prenatal, John the Baptist, knew who the prenatal Jesus was. You say, well... But that's Jesus. That's kind of a special case. Fine, let me give you some more. In Genesis 25, we're told that God knew Jacob and Esau before they were ever born. In Judges chapter 13, God knew Samson before he was born. In Jeremiah chapter 1, we read these words of God to Jeremiah. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Paul said in Galatians 1, but when God who had set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through his grace, Paul was set apart in his mother's womb. Finally, Psalm 139, we read these words of David. For you formed my inward parts, you wove me in my mother's womb. This is David talking to Talking to God, the word form speaks of a, of a potter, a woe speaks of a weaver. God, as the craftsman, put us together in our mother's wombs. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you. We need sonograms. He doesn't. When I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth, poetic language, your eyes had seen my unformed substance and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me when as yet there was not one of them. He knew them all. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. How vast is the sum of them. What an intimate knowledge God has of the unborn and so maybe just maybe to paraphrase John Stott the issue of personhood is not self-awareness but God awareness but you say well but that's God he knows everything of course he knew Jesus and Paul and David and Samson before they were born are we to assume that he did not know any of the 61 million over the past 46 years premise number three the child has purpose before birth it's related to our second premise so I'll touch on it only briefly if you go on in those passages that we just read you will find that God has a purpose for every person Luke chapter 1 says of Jesus, He will be great and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. In Genesis 25, God said of Jacob and Esau that the older would serve the younger. In Judges 13, we're told that Samson, the plan for God was that Samson would deliver the Israelites From the Philistines. The passage in Jeremiah said that he would be a prophet to the nations. In Galatians chapter 1, Paul was chosen to preach Jesus among the Gentiles. That's us. The point is, God not only knows people before they were born, He has a purpose for their lives. An often told yet poignant illustration serves here. Here. One doctor said to another doctor, to another doctor, about the termination of a pregnancy, I want your opinion. If the father is syphilitic and the mother has tuberculosis and the first child was born blind and the second died and the third was born deaf and mute and the fourth had TB, what would you do? The doctor replied, well, I would terminate the pregnancy. The first doctor said, then you would have aborted Beethoven. Beethoven. Every child has a purpose. Fourth premise relates specifically to the right to life, and it is this. The death of an unborn child was cause for punishment in the Scripture. The death of an unborn child was cause for punishment in the Scripture. Abortion provider. The passage is found in Exodus 21, some pretty strong words. For sake of time, let me summarize their content. The text says, if two men are fighting and they hit a pregnant woman accidentally, causing her to give birth prematurely, some actions are to be taken. If there is no serious injury to the child, then the man is, is simply to be fined. But if there is serious injury, listen... If there is serious injury, you are to take life for life. If the child, as a result of being accident, it's manslaughter, life for life. The point is, killing a child in the womb was considered murder. Do you know? that we have laws on the books that say, if you kill a pregnant woman, you are charged with two counts of murder. Can someone please help me understand that? These four premises, I believe, prove life is viable at conception and should be protected and valued. And I want you to know that I have barely touched the arguments that could be offered. Further, I've spent an awful lot of time on it this morning because I want you to understand how God and His Scripture views the unborn child. But now, by way of conclusion, I want us to consider the second fundamental right. The first was right to life. The second fundamental right is the right to forgiveness, and you say, what does this have to do with abortion? Frankly, everything. You you see, statistics show that one in four persons who have abortions are professing evangelical believers. I have absolutely no doubt there are many in this room who have been touched by the pain of abortion. Maybe you've had one. Maybe as a man you encouraged a girlfriend or a wife to have one. Maybe you have a family member or close friend who has had an abortion. And through the course of time you've become convinced abortion is wrong and this morning only served to remind you of that. So what do you do? I want to tell you that there is forgiveness in Jesus Christ. It is not an inherent Or intrinsic right, like the the right to physical life, but it is a right granted by the finished work of Christ on his cross. John chapter 1 says, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right, since we're talking about rights, he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe on his name. He died for all sins and all sinners even the worst of sinners paul tells us paul was a murderer killing believers and found grace god offers grace and forgiveness to you this morning freely maybe though this morning you know that you've been forgiven you're already a christian you know 1 john chapter 1 you've quoted it a thousand times to yourself If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But after months, even years of finding forgiveness, you still struggle with the guilt of the act. In fact, again, today's message has only served to open a wound that if you were honest, you would say remains right under the surface of your emotions. I want to encourage you today that you are not alone. I want you to know that we love you, we forgive you, and we will pray for you. Finally, the last thing I want to say is this. Listen carefully. If you find yourself with an unplanned pregnancy and you don't know what to do, I am pleading with you. Let us help. We have the Hope Pregnancy Resource Center in this community. And the executive director, Molly Petrie, goes to our church. Many of the staff go to our church. They and we will walk with you in the event of an unplanned pregnancy. I promise that we will not heap on more unnecessary condemnation. I promise that we will love you and we will walk with you. In fact, I want you to know that we have a ministry called Chosen Ministry. It is an adoption ministry, and I spoke with its director, one of our elders, Mike Kimbrough, this week, and he gave me permission to say this. If you have a child through an unplanned pregnancy, we will adopt the child. You don't have to wonder what you're going to do. We are promising you we will adopt the child we will love the child and we will love you and we will walk with you.